chapter 42, verses 1 through 9. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice, and he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of heaven who stretched them out and spread out the earth with all that springs up from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. To open eyes that are blind, to set free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. The word of the Lord. The last two Sundays in a row, the rectors have given me the wrong readings. So it's nice I don't have to, to wing it this morning on the spot. As we say in the field, we have a saying is, always be prepared to preach and always be prepared to die. So if someone were to ask you, just... Who is Jesus, and what did he come into the world to do? How would you respond? Real basic question. And it's timely, as we read today about Jesus beginning his public ministry. You know, his gospel, it didn't call people just to pray a little prayer for their sins to be forgiven so that they would go to heaven when they die. That's not it. Who is Jesus, and what did he come to do? Jesus did not come to make church members. Let's talk about this. And, and we're in no hurry today, right? The, the Cowboys aren't in the playoffs. Um, I'm a Saints guy. We're out. So I got all day. How about you? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Yeah, Chiefs. I'm from, kind of from Houston, so issues. But it's a blessing to be here this morning. Uh, just by point of disclosure, um, I'm also a Canadian. But I am uh, I'm married to a multi-generational Texan. Stacy's actually from Galveston, which is kind of part of Texas, which is kind of part of the U.S., but I, I, have, I have residency papers. We are, um, just in case you're worried, we are, uh, we're full-time missionaries. We're presently serving in northern Iraq. And when we're back in the U.S., we have a glorified storage shed in New Braunfels where we stay. Um, but this was nice this morning, coming from New Braunfels, we didn't have to go through an airport or get through TSA, so uh, thanks for the invite. This is like a home game, home weekend for us. 
So only, um, only 3% of all missionaries go to the Islamic world with 1.8 billion souls. Just think about that. We're going to talk a little more about that during the, the Lunch and Learn. We've been full-time field workers since 2003. We started in East Africa, and as Father Peter said, in August of 2014, we were called to Iraq. We, we rolled in three weeks after ISIS declared caliphate. Uh, we were about three miles away from them. And ISIS created instantly about 2 million refugees. We still have about 1.2 million refugees within a, a short drive of our home. And, and they're going to be there for a while. The average stay for a refugee in a UN camp globally is 18 years. Okay. And the, the Turkish invasion of Syria, uh, which just happened overnight in November, created 300,000 new refugees. I was on this, the phone this morning, actually, with Iraq trying to sort that. So we're going to share more about what's going on in the Middle East, um, Iran, Iraq, Syria, during the Lunch and Learn. Uh, come, bring your questions. You, you have to have questions about the Middle East. It's kind of been in the news lately, right? We also just uh, we have prayer cards and uh, fridge magnets to remind you to pray for us. They're in the back. Please, prayer strikes the winning blow. Ministry is just sweeping up the results. You're the engine behind mission. You're the driving force. You're the most important part. We're just the, we're just the tip of the spear. It's your, when we're baptizing Kurds, when we're bringing relief, when we're seeing the kingdom of God come, it's because you have been praying. And we really, really appreciate your prayers. Again, the, the Middle East is a rough neighborhood. And no one pays us, so we're grateful for your financial support. Okay, thus endeth the propaganda. Here we go. Okay, so what's happening in the Middle East, uh, you know, we kind of say, if you don't like what's happening there, wait five minutes, it'll get worse, you know. Um, it's, um, it's, it's sad and it's tragic, but why should that matter to you here in Austin? Why do, why do Syrians and Kurds and Yazidi, who are they people, uh, matter? Why does poverty in Austin matter? And I love your mission statement, the life of God for the good of the world. Love it. And it fits perfectly with our readings today. See, God has a plan, and it involves us. And at the heart of that plan is Jesus Messiah. Who is he? And what's his plan? And what's our response? Who is he? What's his plan? And what's our response? The first verses of Isaiah this morning, right away, kind of give us an apparent contradiction. It's a strange paradox about this coming Messiah. Did you catch it? It says, here is my servant whom I am hold, my chosen one in whom I delight. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. Now, now get this. To, to bring justice, that's something that a king does. Justice means putting everything to right. To bring justice to the nations, it means to order things the way they ought to be. Okay? That's the job of a king, a great king with, with great power. Right? It would take tremendous power right, to put everything in the nations the way they ought to be together. Okay, That's what it's, what it's saying. That's what this Messiah is going to do. All right? But this king is also a servant. The text says he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street. So this is a man who gets the results of a king, justice, but he doesn't use the normal methods of a king. How can this be? A king who serves, who doesn't exercise earthly power. It's a, it's a strange combination. And when the people heard this, it's, it's like lightning from the sky. 
When Jesus comes out of the water in the river Jordan, heaven opens, the Spirit descends on him, and a voice says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, the first half of that statement is um, a quote from the Greek version of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 talks about this great king who is going to come and put down the nations and bring what? Ultimate justice. That's what he's going to do. The first half of that statement is, this is the great king, this is the messianic king who's going to bring justice, and the second half, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in whom my soul delights. That's quoting Isaiah 42. So this voice from heaven is saying that there's this great, strong, messianic king, and this servant is the same person, and it's Jesus. How is that possible? Just think about about it, the the juxtaposition of these kind of contradictory things, this, this weakness, this gentleness, this meekness, this servant's heart, and then there's this power, this majesty, this glory, and, and get what? guess what? It gets even more perplexing. This, this servant king, and those two usually don't get together, right? This servant king is going to suffer. Now, there's a hint here. It's in verse 3 from Isaiah. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And then in verse 4 it says, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice. That word discourage, we need to know this, is the same word as bruised. Okay? The point here is that the servant is going to experience these things. He will be bruised. He will be crushed. But guess what? It won't stop him from bringing justice on earth. He's going to be snuffed out, yet he's going to be victorious. Do you see it? How? The questions here, good questions. How? So here we begin to see that Jesus is the climax of all the themes of the Old Testament. It's all pointing to him. One of the themes of the Old Testament is bruising. Go back to Genesis 3. Back to the place. There was this place, Genesis 3. It's where we lost justice. It's where we lost our well-being. It's where we lost shalom. All right? It's where all of our relationships went wrong. When everything broke, everything broke. Okay? And you'll see God in the midst of that mess, in the midst of that breaking. What is he doing? You see him revealing the gospel. We get our first inkling of the gospel right there. It's in Genesis 3.5. It's a little verse. God looks at the serpent who has just tempted Adam and Eve, and he says, I'm going to give the woman a descendant. A descendant of Eve is going to come, and he will crush your head, but he will, you will bruise his heel. Think of the image here. Get the image right now. Right? You're, you're, you're standing in a group of people. All your loved ones are around. And this poisonous, deadly snake start slithering toward them, okay? And you know the only way to save them is to step on it. But when you step on a deadly poisonous snake, even if you crush its head, it can bite your heel and poison you. You've saved your friends, but the poison of the serpent has gone into you. You've saved your friends, but you've died. That's the image we need to see. And when we get to Isaiah 53, we read, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was what? bruised, right, for our iniquities, good, and by his stripes we are healed. So Jesus was bruised so he could heal all your bruises. No matter how beat up you are, no matter what a mess you are, Jesus died for you. And the Spirit of God makes you a child of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. It's Romans eight fifteen. 
So here's the deal. Today, the text is saying it's declaring the marvelous love of God for a broken world. It's God saying, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter, my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Do you hear those words spoken over you? Hear them spoken over you. You are my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. My friend Tom Wright notes that those who in repentance and faith follow Jesus through baptism and along the road he will now lead us will find if we listen that same voice from heaven who speaks to us. As we learn to put aside our own plans and submit to him, we will be granted greater moments of vision, glimpses of his greater reality. At the center of that sudden sight, we will find our loving Father affirming us as his children, equipping us too with the Holy Spirit so that our lives may be swept clean and we may be made ready for use. So Jesus calls us to a higher mission and purpose for our lives. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. It's spectacular reading through the Old Testament with Muslims. And we, we, we have a rule as, we, um, as when we go in and start doing Bible study with Muslims when we're in the Old Testament, we, don't, we actually don't say the word Bible, we don't say church, we don't say Christian, and we don't even use the word Jesus because his name isn't written there. But guess what? It's all about him. And it's amazing to watch them have this aha moment when they get to the Gospels that it was all about him. It's all about him. I get goosebumps. I still get goosebumps every time we do it. He's the climax of history. He's a king, but he's a different kind of king. He's a, he's a suffering servant king. And Jesus' baptism today shows us how, how different this king is and how different his kingdom is going to be. We have to get this. See, at his baptism, Jesus was being, what, obedient to the Father. It was out of love he submitted to the Father's will, and the Father is pleased to accept his offering. And friends, we, we enter into this very relationship with this king and this very different kind of kingdom. How do we enter it? We enter it through obedience. Jesus models today. And we enter it through repentance and humility. Jesus later says that, that entering his kingdom requires what? Passing through a narrow door, right? His kingdom only bent quite low, made utterly small, disrobed of all righteousness of our own, and wholly willing to have the coat of flesh removed from us down to the last rag, can one get through? W.F. Besser. So this strange kingdom entered in through humility and repentance. It's two things. It's, it's individual and it's corporate. It's both spiritual and physical. We sometimes miss this. We, we polarize, you know. We get with, it's all physical or it's all spiritual. Um, you know, we see it with the gospel. It's all mercy ministries or it's all salvation cards, you know. Um, and it's, it's all. It's, it brings us the, the sure hope of being in love with Jesus forever. And, but it's also the hope of the world of justice and righteousness. Do you see that? It's both. It's not, it's not right, proper, biblical, correct to, to separate these things. Look how different the gospel is. Just, just get this. Like, like Jesus himself, the gospel of the kingdom, it holds together things that, that don't normally go together. And if we don't get this, what we do is we slip off into our silos. We get, we get polarized, 
All right? Think about it. Okay? The gospel of the kingdom holds together stuff that doesn't normally go together, just like Jesus is this suffering servant king. Okay, we have paradoxes here. You know, conservatives don't mind talking about individual virtue and character, but get kind of nervous when we start talking about oppression and injustice. Okay? And on the other hand, the other side, they, they like to talk about how we care for everybody and make the world a better place. But, but calling people to fall in love with Jesus, repent of their sin, kind of triggers them. Like, oh, that's exclusive. Oh. You know? See, if you live by the gospel of the kingdom and not worldly ideology, the life you lead will be so different because the kingdom combines things that no one else does. This is unique, what we're doing here. You know, here we are as a community, right? And if we're shaped by the gospel of the kingdom, Jesus' gospel, we're go- here's what we're going to do. We're going to call our neighbors, we're going to call our friends to believe and to say, hey, we hope you would have faith in Jesus. We want you to know this. We want you to enter into God's kingdom through the narrow door of repentance. It's utterly life-changing. You ever led somebody into the kingdom? Have you ever seen somebody come into the kingdom and the difference? At the same time, though, so we do that. We're called to do that. But at the same time, we turn to all of our neighbors and we say, I'm going to make Austin a great place for you to live. I am going to sacrifice for you. I'm going to give my time and my talent and my money to make Austin a great place for you and your family, whether you believe as I do or not. Do you see that? That doesn't happen anywhere else but here. You know, there are those who say there's no truth, so we just love everybody. Everything's okay. We have others who say some people have truth, some people are good, some people are bad. You know, I fight with Americans all the time who who don't want to believe a Muslim can follow Jesus. They just can't get their heads around it. And I simply invite them to come to Iraq and meet them. (laughs) And they unfriend me on Facebook right away. And I have the same thing. I have, I have people who say to me, oh, that's terrible. Just leave them alone. They have their own religion. Why are you bothering them? I just make the same invitation. Come to Iraq and meet them. They will share with you the difference Jesus has made in their life. And it's extraordinary. Okay, no takers. I just can't get people to come visit us. A disciple of Jesus says, come into God's kingdom by believing the truth, but if you don't, I'm still going to love you with my heart and my life. Repent, convert, come in. I'm going to serve this community. I'm going to serve my neighbors, whether you believe like I do or not. That's unique. Why? Because it's shaped by the gospel, not by ideology. Are, Are we shaped by the gospel or are we shaped by ideology? The question coming up on an election year. We gotta think about that. So back to our original question. What did Jesus come to do? What did he come to do? He came to bring a kingdom. And and entering his kingdom, following him in humility, living a new way of life, that's our response to his gospel message. See, the good news is that the king has come, he's defeated death and sin, and he's in this process of setting everything right. It's what a king does. See, his kingdom undoes all the curses of the fall. And just as the Father sent him, so he sends us. 
So this me- that's his message. Now, when the king comes with a message for us, it demands a response. You get that? The king came with a message for you. He puts it in your lap. You have to make a response. In the same way that the kingdom is at the heart of Jesus' message, his call, call to follow is essential to the gospel. And that pushes us to realize that, that Jesus didn't just call people to a mere decision of the mind, right? Fill out a checklist, a punch card, a salvation card, yeah, I'm in, right? He calls us to live an entirely new life, service, not power. Again, Jesus did not come to make church members. It's not in the book. You can't find it. It's not there. He doesn't just save us from something. He saves us to something. Jesus came to free people from sin and death. And here's what he came to do. He came to make disciples who would make disciples who would bring heaven to earth. That's what you're supposed to be doing. That's what we're supposed to be doing here. Make disciples who make disciples who bring heaven to earth. Doesn't that sound good? That sounds really good to me. And it's beautiful to see it happen. See, the call of a disciple is to follow the king and build for his kingdom. That's the call. You know, we, when we work with the Muslims and unreached people, we, just, we never even let them see what a church member looks like. We don't want them to ever see that. We just want them to be an obedient disciple of Jesus who, who, who builds for his kingdom and, and shares. That's, that's, all, that's all we're trying to do. That's all we're trying to do. See, you're, you're more than a church plant. So much more than that in Northeast Austin. You are a kingdom outpost. You are an outpost of the kingdom filled with disciples of Jesus who are bringing heaven to earth here in Austin and in the nations. Isn't that good? I like it. See, the coming of the kingdom, that was the heart of Jesus' message. We kind of lose that sometimes. And see, the kingdom of God is the answer to the world's problems. If you're frustrated about the state of the world and the nation, the answer is the kingdom of God. I mean, why do you think the Middle East is such a mess? It's because the vast majority of people there have no idea who Jesus is and no one to tell them. And only 3% of missionaries go to the Islamic world. See, as followers of Jesus, we should know the answer is the gospel and the kingdom. We tell people all the time, look, there is no political solution to the Middle East. There is no diplomatic solution to the Middle East. Ultimately, ultimately, there's no military solution to the Middle East. Hear me? We've tried all that. The answer is the kingdom of God. That's the answer. It's the only answer. When the kingdom of God comes, everything changes. What's the, what's the fastest growing Christian country in the world today? Anybody know? Iran. Iran. And then there's China. China, 10,000 baptisms a day. Ultimately, policy of various kinds are not going to fix Iran and China. Ultimately, God is on the move. God is doing something right now. Largest Islamic nation in the world. Anybody know it? 
Indonesia. The numbers are right now that by the 2050s, it'll be majority Christ follower. God's on the move. God's doing something. When the kingdom comes, everything changes. And it's, it's the same for the U.S. It's the same for Austin. You know, we want to knee-jerk to talk radio and bumper stickers. I have never seen a bumper sticker lead anybody into the kingdom of God. You know, or a fight on Facebook. Okay? But we have seen lives change. We have seen nations change. Communities change. In Iraq, we work with, um, we work with the traditional Christian remnant. There were 2 million uh, surface Christians at the time of Saddam. There's about 130,000 left. We, uh, we work with the Iraqi Kurds, the Iranian Kurds, the Syrian Kurds, and the Yazidi people. Anybody hear of the Yazidi? They're the ones that the U.S. military rescued off the, the mountaintop in the helicopters when ISIS chased them up there. They're, they're lovely people. They're a little bit feral, okay? They're a little wild. They're lovely. They're a distinct people group. They're about 8,000 years old with their own religion. They worship a peacock. We're working on that, okay? All right. So they're not Muslim. They're not Christian. ISIS was the 74th genocide against them. We know girls as young as 10 who were sold back and forth between ISIS members for five years. All right, there's about a million of these people left on the planet. About 750,000 are living in refugee camps all around us. Um, they have severe trauma. They live in miserable conditions. After five and a half years, their UN tents are wearing out. They get about six hours of electricity a day. Think about being in a tent when it's 120 degrees outside with not even a fan. And you have scabies, which runs wild around the camp, and we don't have the medicine for it. But what's real, I mean, we dread it. We call summer the inferno and just dread it. But actually, they fear winter because they freeze to death. The UN gives them one blanket, one mattress per family. Average family size is seven. So we had one night where 30 kids froze to death in one camp. All right? When we first arrived in camp, camp is a hopeless place. There were no smiles. It was utterly hopeless. They can't leave. They can't go home. They're stuck. We know the average stay is 18 years. It's miserable. But with Christ followers coming into camp, praying with the refugees who don't know God's love for them, by providing real tangible relief for them, mattresses and blankets and food and medicine, by sharing God's word with them, guess what's happening? The atmosphere is changing. Jesus is doing what he does. He's liberating the captives from hopelessness. The, I can close my eyes, guys. I can close my eyes and walk into camp, and it feels totally different than it did 18 months ago because Christ followers are in there bringing the kingdom, building for the kingdom. We're seeing refugees fall in love with Jesus, and he is their hope. Friends, the kingdom of God changes everything. So it's when followers of Jesus are obedient, to him. Obedient because we can trust him. We can trust in what he, he came to do, what he's going to do, what he's doing now. We can see glimmers of that final kingdom when this great king puts all things to right. We get a foretaste. And friends, it's beautiful. Have you seen the kingdom of God come upon a community before? Anybody? It's spectacular. The spiritually dead are raised to new life. Evil and justice are overcome. This is what this different king calls us to do. Expanding his kingdom, not with coercion, not with being loud, but through humble service that seeks the good of others. 
Dallas Willard, I love. He writes, invest your life in what God is doing, which cannot be lost. Of course, this means we will invest in our relationship with Jesus and through him to God. But beyond that and close union with it, we will devote ourselves to the good of other people. Okay, we together? You okay? You're surviving this okay? We're good? Okay. Not too traumatized? All right. I'm known for being um, noncompliant and disruptive. That's why my bishop likes me 8,000 miles away. We have dinner once a year, and that, that works for both of us. It's, it's real good. Okay. So let's land the plane today. Let's land the plane. Who is Jesus? He's a king. He's a king who came to serve and to suffer and to free people. And he came to launch a kingdom that would heal the world. And he's like, as a king, he commands obedience. You know, Jesus' love language is obedience. Y'all done that marriage stuff? You know? You know, guys, when we kind of get in trouble, we have to go to counseling and we get that book about love languages to read, you know? You know? <laughs> right? You know? And so, like, Stacy's, Stacy's love language is quality time. All right? I'm an introvert. My love language is leave me alone. All right? So Jesus has a love language. He's a person. His love language is obedience. If you love me, you will obey. Right? Obey. All right. So let's talk about that. Have you entered his kingdom with humility and repentance? Are you, is, is your priority Jesus or an ideology? Is his kingdom your priority? How are we building for the kingdom? How are we building up treasure in heaven? Are we living his life for the good of the world and doing it his way through humble, quiet service? You know, his kingdom, is, it's a radical thing. It's so different, and it, it's for all, and it was bought through his blood and sacrifice. God's generosity is radical. Are, are we practicing radical hospitality, radical generosity, radical service? Jesus is the ultimate radical. God's love is radical. Are we following that same way? Or are we kind of, eh. yeah. You know, we can be truly generous and fruitful for the kingdom here in Austin, here in the U.S., and in the nations if we're convinced of who Jesus is and what he has done for you and what he's doing now and what he's going to do. God's priorities become our priorities. Are God's priorities our priorities? Now, if you get that, you're going to want to invest your time and your money and your talent in what he is doing, building his kingdom of justice and healing the world. See, if we submit to him and seek him, he'll give us his very life. Living the life of God, you'll seek the good of the world. See, friends, there's a king and a kingdom, and he invites you. He invites me. There's an invitation today to live under his lordship and to expand his good kingdom, his rule of justice, his reign, healing the world and putting all things right. That invitation demands a response. That's the invitation of the king. Join me in what I am doing, healing the world and putting all things to right. And it's when disciples of Jesus are living in obedience to him and doing things his way, that's when things really change. We say we want change, but are we willing to do it Jesus' way, which is the way that truly works?